If you're just joining us this morning, we're starting a new series on the Gospel of John. This is going to take us at least through the end of the year, and uh, I hope you're very excited. We're going to be taking the Gospel of John just uh, section by section and teaching and preaching through it. And so this morning you're here, it's our first Sunday, so we're looking at John chapter 1 at the first five verses. Now, so Christian, hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you be seated and keep your Bible open in front of you as we pray? Uh, Jesus, as we open up your word, uh, we confess that you are just the best. We love you because you are truth and grace itself. Holy Spirit, even now, would you be opening up our minds and our hearts to see Jesus and him and nothing else? In his name we pray. Amen. You know, I'll never forget the night. Uh, I remember going home all by myself, lonely across campus, and ending up alone in my dorm room. It was probably 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and I remember praying uh, that night a very theologically inaccurate prayer. Uh, but praise God that God answers very theologically inaccurate prayers. You see, what had happened to me uh, earlier in that evening, is, as a you know, sophomore in college, I was having all kind of uh, fun arguments and bantering with a good friend of mine. And as you can imagine, after arguing about politics, what did we turn to but religion? And as we argued about it, uh, a friend of mine, yeah, his name was Kyle, he's still, he's still here. <laughs> um, his name is Kyle, and I love Kyle, and I'll never forget Kyle's face, uh, because um, pretty much halfway through that conversation, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Dustin, do you love God? And I said, that's a stupid question. <laughs> and he said, no, it's not. It's like the question. Do you love God? And I said, of course I don't love him. What is there to love? And he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget these words. He says, Dustin, you aren't a Christian. And in that moment, to my core, I knew that he was right. You know, I'd been raised in the church, I was raised in a religious home, and yet this idea of loving God had somehow missed me my entire life. Now, I may have believed in sort of a divine being, I may have believed in a God, but that didn't mean I loved him. I mean, you know, what I told him that night was I said, look, the Yankees may be the best team in baseball, but that doesn't make me a Yankees fan, right? I can acknowledge the greatness of something, but that doesn't mean I actually believe or love it. And so, shaken to my core that somehow I had missed like the whole point of Christianity, and it has, I was raised in the church, I went back to my dorm room and prayed a very theologically inaccurate prayer. And you know what I prayed? I went uh, to uh, my dorm, I grabbed a Bible, and what I said is I said, Lord, if you are worth loving, uh, if you are worth giving my life to, you have to show me, and I'm only going to give you one chance. I'm not going to talk to any pastors. I'm not going to talk to any of my knucklehead friends because what do they know? I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm going to read one book of the Bible and decide for myself if you're really worth loving, if you're worth 
all of this praise and stuff because, you know, most of the people I knew were really judgmental that went to church. And I wanted to believe in a God of grace, but I didn't think he was very gracious. And I said, okay, God, you have one shot. I'm not endorsing that kind of prayer, but that's what I prayed. And because God is gracious, he answered that prayer. And providentially, amazingly, what happened that dorm room night is I opened up. I couldn't have told you one thing about any of the books of the Bible. I opened up to the Gospel of John. And I said, I'll read this book and decide for myself who you are. And friends, I want you to know I cried my way through the Gospel of John. And finally, at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus had been mercilessly killed, after he had told us nothing but the truth, after he had blown my mind by telling me that before Abraham was, I am... I remember standing in my mind's eye next to Mary Magdalene at the resurrection, beholding Jesus alive back from the dead and realizing that's it. That's what I believe. I believe in Jesus and he is the best (laughs) and I'm going to give my life to him. And so friends, what you and I are about to do over these next few months is you and I are going to see Jesus in the gospel of John almost more than any other book of the Bible, the Gospel of John in your lap uh, reads like a divine book, like God is really speaking to us in a profound way, unlike any other book you have ever read. Uh, You know, I I don't use this word lightly, but the Gospel of John is sublime. (laughs) And what that word means is it's sort of beyond how our minds can even grasp or fathom. I mean, it's amazing when you read John 1, 1, a a child can understand it, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A kid can understand that. And yet there's a profound, sublime, mind-blowing sense where that is so deep. It'll take the rest of our lives to really comprehend. And so when I dive into John and I come back to John regularly, the image in my mind that I always have uh, is the same, and I hope it makes sense to you, but to me, when we look at John Uh, It's like you and I are standing on the precipice of an enormous cliff, and we're looking out at a beautiful vista. Uh, So, you know, if you haven't been to the Grand Canyon, um, who here has hiked at least Upper Table Rock, or at least can picture Upper Table Rock? All right, so in your mind's eye, I want to do a thought experiment with you just real fast. Imagine you and I are standing on the top of Upper Table Rock Mountain. You know, the wind is blowing because there's no trees to block the breeze, Right? You can kind of feel your heart speeding a little bit faster because we've hiked up and we're starting to see the Rogue Valley before us. And now what I want you to do is on that cliff, I want you to walk towards the cliff. And now what I want you to do is take two more steps. And now I want your toes and wiggling in your hiking shoes. I want your toes to leave the ground and be dangling off the cliff. You can feel the breeze. It's moving in your hair, Right? You can feel your toes wiggling off the cliff, and if you fall, that'll be the end of you. Uh, Friends, that's what it's like to gaze at the Gospel of John. It is amazing. A child can do it. An adult can do it, but that doesn't make it safe or any less terrifying. But friends, standing on a cliff like that, that's the closest I can fathom to standing on the precipice of holiness of beholding what the gospel of John will say about God. Um, I can see it, but it is sublime. It is beyond something I can wrap my mind around, and I could gaze at it all day.
Right? So that's what it's like to get to the Gospel of John. It's going to be simple, but there's also going to be a depth to this that I need you to hang on and invest in. Um, Pope Gregory, writing in the 300s, said the Gospel was like this. Uh, Gregory said it was shallow enough for a lamb to wade in, and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And that's very much what's going to happen in John chapter 1. It can sound very simple, but there's also this incredible depth to it. So let's dive in. Look at verse 1 with me. Right there, it starts off with the phrase, in the beginning. Now, right off the bat, that should remind you of what book? The Bible, because how does the Bible begin in the very first words of Genesis? The very first words right out of the gate are, in the beginning. And John intentionally echoes those exact words. And he begins his gospel talking about this thing called the Word. And what John is telling us when he says, in the beginning was the Word, is he's saying, you know, way, way back before the creation of anything, before time itself began, there was this thing that was there. And it was the Word. And notice what word he uses to describe. Look at the fourth word in this sentence. In the beginning was. And that's an important word because it means that at the beginning of time, the Word was already there. Stretch as far back as you can think to the beginning of everything, and the Word was already there. It doesn't say at the beginning, God created the Word, and so that's the Word's beginning. What it says is at the beginning of time, the Word was already there. Now, what in the world is the Word? Now, you may not uh, care too much about Greek, which is cool. Don't worry about it. I can tell you everything you need to know about Greek right now in this one sentence, because the word behind the word is the Greek word logos. We get the word logic from it, and it's L-O-G-O-S. If you're taking notes in your Bible, this would be a great thing to write next to the word word right there in verse 1. In the beginning was the logos. Right? We have a charter school down the street called Lagos Charter School. Right, You've heard that word before. Uh, but what you need to know is when John uses that word, when he says before time began, there was this thing, this entity that was existing for all of eternity, and it was the Lagos. What John is doing by using the word, word, Lagos, is he is appealing at, at the same time to Greeks, you know, Gentiles, and Jewish Israelites. You see, for Greek-speaking people, for Gentiles, people like me, they would have understood logos, and they would have thought, well, that's sort of the impersonal rationality at work in the universe. You know how like two plus two equals four? Well, they would say, well, that's just like the logos. That's the logic of the universe. Of course it has to equal four. That's just the impersonal forces of nature. It'd be similar to the way you and I would maybe think about the laws of thermodynamics, or the way you and I think about gravity. Gravity doesn't have a personality, right? I don't talk to gravity. I just sort of exist in a world with gravity. It's just sort of there. And what John is saying to Greeks is he's saying, before time began, yes, there was this order, this creational idea of logic, this logos that was at work. But then he turns at the same time, using the same word, to Israelites, to Jewish people, people who are steeped in the Word of God. And they would have understood by the phrase logos, word, to be the revealing of God's power. 
So when the Hebrews talked about God's word, it was the revelation of his power. By the words of his mouth, God spoke and everything is created into being. You see, what John is saying is he's saying, Greeks, you're stumbling in the dark towards this thing that has created this world. You call it the Lagos. And he says to his fellow Jews, because John is a Jew, and he's writing to his fellow people, he says, you know that that revelation of God's power? You know how we can comprehend God and see him revealed? That was already in existence before time even began. And what he's saying is to both of these groups of people, The Logos has entered our world, and you can know him. He's not just the abstract principle, and he's not just the power of God. He's something profoundly and amazingly more than that. This eternally existing thing, this Logos, it starts to almost be like a person. Look what John says next about it in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In Greek right there, when he says with God, it's a really unique construction, and it can only refer to when two people are together, right? And it has this idea of two people are face to face. And so what John is getting at is he's saying, you know that divine force that created everything that you Greeks understand intuitively? And he says to the Hebrews, you know, you, know who, you know how you know the Lord because of the Bible? You know his revealing of himself? It's a totally unique person that is in relationship with God. They are face to face as they were. He is distinct. He's a person. He's face to face. And if that doesn't blow your mind enough, <laughs> if that's not hard to wrap your mind around enough, John then lays the hammer and he says... And the Word was God. So not only is this divine power in somehow some kind of fellowship with God, He is God also. He's God Himself. And right here we start to see in John uh, what we Christians for 2,000 years have understood to be the Trinity. This idea that God is God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And um, this is really, really hard to wrap your minds around. I know the Trinity is very, very difficult to understand. Uh, But here's some things just to to know, Christian, when we talk about the Trinity. First off, when we talk about the Trinity, any example that you give is really a bad idea. Don't try to compare the Trinity to anything, okay? If you say it's like an egg with the shell, the yolk, and the white, don't do that. That's heresy. Bad idea, okay? God's not like an egg. Also, God's not like a three-leaf clover, Also heresy, also don't say it, okay? So, um, we awake. You don't have to say any of those things. You don't, don't ever compare God to anything. It's really hard to explain the Trinity. When we talk about the three persons in one God, we're not trying to explain how that works. That is language we use to describe the mystery. Does that make sense? So when I explain to you as best I can how the Trinity works, I'm not trying to explain the, ministry, the mystery of God. I'm saying this is how we think about that thing that we can't explain totally, right? So why is it hard to make sense of the Trinity? You know, how is it that the Lagos is God and yet also like with God, talking to him face to face? How does that work? Well, uh, it's really hard for us to grasp it because you and I, we're humans. We're human beings, 
And for every human being, we understand that that human being is only one person. I mean, think about it this way. You know, what am I? I am a human being. There's one human being of which I am, right? I'm a human being. But you understand, not only am I a human, I am a unique person. I'm Dustin. And it's only a one-to-one ratio for everybody in this room, right? No matter how crazy you think you are, you're only one human being with one person, right? As much as your spouse may object, right? (laughs) You are one human being, and there is one person. And that's the only way we come. That's the only way we really know how to comprehend what it means to be a person. For every person, there is a being, right? You are a woman, and your name is Jane. That's how it comes, right? But here's the thing. When it comes to God, in a way that we don't really grasp, but we see, God is one being. He is God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, is what the Old Testament says. The New Testament says, even the demons believe that the Lord is one. There is one God, and somehow there are three persons in the one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We sing it when we sing holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now, do you understand that? No. If you think you understand that, that just shows you don't understand it. Okay? The Trinity is really, really hard to wrap your mind around, but it's incredible and it's beautiful. And this is the the sublime, the incredible thing that we're seeing in John chapter 1. Look at John verse 1. In the beginning, before time itself, was Jesus, God the Son, the revealing of who God is. And Jesus, God the Son, was with God the Father in fellowship, face to face, enjoying the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the God's Son, right? God's Son was God Himself. And verse 2 is repetition, if that doesn't make sense. Look at verse 2. This is only repeating words from verse 1. He was in the beginning with God. Now, what... Why does he mention all of this? You know, what is he trying to get us to see by talking about the Trinity? Well, what he's trying to show us is exactly who Jesus is. Jesus does not come to give you, you know, great life advice or like five ways you can hack your life to be more productive or five ways, you know, that you can use your phone better in your life. Jesus is God entering our world. And the incredible thing is God the Son has always been here. In fact, everything that you see around you right now was made through him and for him. And friends, that includes you. That includes your retirement account. That includes your garage. That includes your dining room table. That includes your kids. That includes your family. That includes your career. That includes your retirement. That includes your next vacation that you're hoping will somehow, you know, save your blood pressure. Everything that you have, everything that I own, was made through and for Jesus. Look at verse 3. He could not be broader-minded than this, friends. All things were made through him 
and without him was not anything made that was made. And if that sounds repetitious, it is. John is intentionally being repetitious because he's making the emphatic point that God the Son has always been here and anything you can think of that has been created, anything in the universe, any planet, any galaxy, all of it was made for Jesus' glory and through his power. And John's not the only one who teaches this. Uh, Paul picks up on the same theme when he talks to the Colossians. You can flip over uh, to the book of Colossians. This is page 1168, if you've got your blue print Bible. And listen to how Paul talks about the same thing. We're trying to wrap our minds around who Jesus is. And Paul says this in Colossians. He says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, what John is trying to help us, you know, we're on this cliff, we're trying to behold the glory of who Jesus is, we're trying to take it in. And what John is saying is the whole world, your entire life, every breath that you breathe is by the power of God the Son. And it was made for His glory. And something, friend, um, whether you realize this or not, something in your life is the locus of gravity. (laughs) Something in your life is the thing around which everything else revolves. Right? So um, let's say that, you know, uh, you live for the sake of your career, right? Everything around your life, you know, when you lay down, your head's on the pillow, you're thinking about work, right? When you're most alive, you're most excited, it's when you're working. Well, what's your greatest fear in life? Your greatest fear in life is you're going to, you know, have an early heart attack and die, because then who's going to do all the fun work to be done, right? Or let's say you make your family the center of gravity for your life. And everything around your life revolves around being a parent. But then, unfortunately, what happens when kids grow up? If you make your kids the center of your whole life's existence, what are they going to do when they turn 18 or 19? They're going to pop right out of your hand. They can't endure the squeeze. They can't bear the weight of our existence, right? What if you make retirement the focus of your life? You'll miss the here and now. You'll miss today. Living for a day you may not actually ever see. You know, Bob Dylan, that great theologian, he wasn't lying when he said, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Something in your life is the locus of center, the center of gravity around which every other decision is actually in reaction to. See, but what John says is the locus of gravity, the thing around which you find life itself, is actually Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who gave you life. He has created everything. Who else but Jesus could be the center and bear the weight of your whole existence? Uh, Your career can't do that. Your kids can't do it. Uh, Your beautiful house can't. Your retirement can't. Nothing but Jesus can bear the weight of your existence because he is the source of it. And that's what John says Jesus has come to give us. Look at verse 4. John says, In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, what I love about that word life, if you've got your Bible, I would underline it. Because this is another profound thing that you'll see in the Greek. 
is John could have used two different Greek words for the word life. On one hand, he could have used the word bios, B-I-O-S, which is where we get the word biology, which is the study of life. When you use the word bios in Greek, it would be sort of like, I have life. I, I can hear my heart beating. I, am, I have breath in my lungs. I am bios. I am physically alive. The other word you could use for life which is the one that Jesus constantly uses and John is constantly talking about, is not bios life. It's Zoe life. Anyone here ever met a little girl named Zoe? It means life. But not life like the kind you're thinking of where I'm alive and I'm breathing, but life in the sense of the life that I am actually seeking, the purpose, the fulfillment, the joy, uh, the reason I go on vacation is to experience this, whatever this is. The reason I, I pin all of my hopes on retirement is because I want this kind of life. The reason I got married, I had the career that I have is to experience real life, Zoe life. John comes along and lovingly knocks all of our idols down. And he says, they, none of these good things could give you life. It's only in him, in Jesus. He's not talking about bios life. He's talking about real life, the life you yearn for and you yearn for every day. And John says, it's only in Jesus. And until you know who he is and believe in his name, uh, life will always be like a slippery piece of soap. It's going to slip in your hands. Any, any taste of real life, real joy is going to be fleeting at its best because it's only going to be temporarily tasting a foreshadowing of what it's like to know Jesus. You'll never have it in its fullness because it's only available through him. Now, I know we're Presbyterians here, so we're a little quiet, right? But I can safe, well, I can with like 90% assurance say that everybody in this room is experiencing bios life. There's like, I'm assuming all of you are alive and well. I don't know. You're kind of quiet, right? So I think we're all experiencing bios life. Or we're all alive, right? We get that. We're all, Lord willing, right? We're all alive. Amen. There we go. That's what I'm looking for, y'all. Thank you. Y'all didn't do well in disproving me that we're all experiencing bios life, but that's okay. It's neither here nor there. But friends, what this means, I mean, if you... Stop and think about this. Is what it means is there are people in this room, even right now, who are experiencing bios life. You're breathing, aren't you? But they haven't experienced life in Jesus yet. Zoe life, the real life, the life you're always yearning for. Because to have that life, you have to believe that Jesus is God come to save us all. And friends, if nothing else, that's what I want you to know. I want you to know Jesus because he is life itself. And your family is good. Your career is good. Your retirement is good. I'm not saying those things are bad. But if you make those things the focus of your life, uh, you will either crush them or you will be crushed by them. Only Jesus can be the focus of life. He is life itself. I mean, this is why John has written this book. 
You know, if you skip to the very end of John, like you're eating the dessert before the main meal, if you go to the very back of John, in John chapter 20, in verse 31, John tells you why he's written this book. John says in John 20, he says, I wrote this in verse 31. I have written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, have you passed from bios to Zoe? Have you gotten sick of just living your kind of mundane life, living for yourself, your passions, and are you ready to live the life of Jesus? See, that's what the gospel offers, and it's only through Jesus, and only Jesus could dare to claim this kind of stuff. I mean, does this sound like a good moral teacher? I mean, when people say Jesus is a good moral teacher, I'm like, who are you listening to? You got weird teachers, dude, because, I mean, if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, I mean, goodness. I mean, if, you're ma- if you had, like, the greatest math teacher of all time, and they were like, I will explain long division and common core math to you. And then they got done lecturing on long division. And then they said, behold, I am multiplication and division. No one can calculate except through me. I'd be like, get out of the class. Leave now. Take everyone you can, but get out now, right? Those are some odd things to say. Jesus doesn't come along and say, I'm going to give you five life hacks. I'm going to give you sort of some teachings to help you have a great life. What Jesus comes along and he says is, I am life. I am the bread of life. Unless you eat of me, you will have not life in you. I am the light of life. If you don't walk in the light, you walk in the darkness. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Do you believe this? I mean, who talks like this? Who could this be? John says this is God in human form. Come to save us all. As you read through the Gospel of John, as we dive into it together, uh, you'll know that uh, very quickly the light faces opposition, that the light is shining into a dark world. And even though the light enters the world, the darkness does kill Jesus. He's mercilessly beaten, flogged. His disciples all abandon him. He's nailed to a cross, stripped of his clothing. And he dies in front of his mother. But friends, do you know that the darkness has not overcome him? Because Jesus walked out of the tomb three days later. And he didn't do it metaphorically. He did it literally and victoriously. Because he is life itself. How could he not walk out of the tomb? He is here to give you life itself. He is all-powerful, all-loving. And he says, unless you come to me and you make me the focus of your life, you'll never know life itself. It'll always slip out of your hands. It'll be like hearing the melody of a song, but you never catch the tune. The light shines in the darkness, but praise God, the darkness doesn't win. Friends, that's as true for Jesus as it is true in your life. The darkness doesn't have to win. In Jesus, it is only defeated. Let me just finish up. Go back in your mind's eye with me to Upper Table Rock. 
John 1 is really sublime. I told you it was heavy, right? Remember the, it's shallow enough for a lamb to go waiting, but it's deep enough for the elephant. You know, and I addressed you like adults, and I hope you appreciate and, you know, are thankful for that. Then I'm not talking to you like kids, because these are deep things. Oh, but friends, um, when I think about what John is doing to us, the, in my mind's eye, I'm back on that cliff, and I'm trying to make sense of the beauty. And it's like over the mountain, I can see a sun rising, right? Over the mountain. Have you ever watched the sunrise? Over a mountain. And, in, and you know that at some point, there's the mountain and there's the sun, and they're not the same thing. But because the light is so blinding, you can't actually discern the line for when the mountain stops and the sun begins, right? Uh, Friends, that's like looking at the Trinity. I know that God is three persons in one God. I don't know how that works, but I know it's true because I see it. And I know it's there. Whether or not I fully understand it and can point to it, I know it's true. But friends, what John is saying when he says Jesus is the light, it's like watching this holy light rising on the horizon And imagine if the rising sun, instead of just moving up, what if it imagine imagine in your mind's eye, it was moving towards you, closer. Your toes are wiggling off the cliff, and it's brighter and brighter and brighter as it moves towards you. And just when it is so blinding, you can't handle it. Imagine the light clears, and standing before you is Jesus. You see, friends, that's like the sublime gospel of John. It's like staring at God saying, I don't get it. You're holy and terrifying and beautiful and profound, and I don't get it, but now I see you. I see you. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Friends, this is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the light of the world. Father, we pray even now that if we are walking in the darkness, that your light would shine brighter and brighter as the noonday sun. Jesus, that you would be the source of our life, that everything would revolve around you and your glory. Jesus, I thank you that all of our wounds and hurts are healed in his name and that the darkness did not overcome it. Lord, we love you. Jesus, you are just the best. Amen.